Okay, I want to use these two um, quotes to begin to offer just a few critical thoughts about resurrection and transformation. So the verse from Romans is, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then this other quote. Instead of the old recurrent imagery of knowledge as a solid thing, bounded or mapped out, we prefer the idea of knowledge as the changing product of social activity. It's not so much like a building, eventually to be finished, but more like an airport, always under construction. It has been compared to an open-minded communal enterprise, to a ship voyaging to an unknown destination, but never arriving and never dropping anchor. So I want to talk about what is surely one of the most pressing questions in our lives as people of faith, transformation. That no matter what our differences are here today, that we might all be able to agree that Christianity is about change. We hear the words around us in our church all of the time, in our worship, our prayers, our talk. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that the idea of transformation is far from simple. In fact, it can haunt us daily and leave us feeling paralyzed, impotent, and I imagine at times full of despair. That when the words, or what I intend to refer to as the script of Christian language dies down, and the emotional charge of worship runs out, that we can feel pretty much the same, stuck with painful thoughts and feelings, plagued by troubling and troubled relationships, and desperate for some sort of guidance or perhaps a word from beyond. I remember this most profoundly in my teenage years when I was making my first steps on the road of faith. And it went like this. I asked God to become part of my life, And the language that many of us will connect with was asking Jesus into my heart. I felt a surge of hope and even joy and a moment when I felt connected very powerfully to something. And then within a period of time, I would be faced with myself again. And I'd be lost in the potent boiling stew and surge of teenage inner life and begin to feel that I was far from what I should be. And what followed was this kind of series of rededications to God, each one more fervent, each one more desperate, hoping against hope that I'd come out a bit better, that I'd be able to get over myself, get above my base nature and become what I, as I thought of as a Christian. And each time there was a kind of a failure, that no matter how many times I tried, my sins didn't go away. Now you might have similar memories or other issues that come to mind when you think about transformation. But the point I want to make was that it didn't really work. I wasn't transformed. That all of the words and all of the praying and the hoping didn't help me. And I was stuck. And most importantly, I was alone with all of this. Who could you talk to when the script didn't work? So this is kind of what we could call maybe the micro level, the everyday But the macro level, the bigger level, is a little bit more frightening as well. As we look at the pages of our history books, we see that Christianity has been involved in some horrific things. The sadistic torture of the Inquisition, religious wars of the 16th and 17th centuries, and the siding of large parts of the church with all sorts of totalitarian regimes throughout the years. These are just a few examples of how, on a macro level, 
that people who called themselves Christians acted in ways that we would now see as profoundly anti-Christian. So what's going on? How come that the whole thing, on an individual level, or sometimes on a bigger level, isn't doing what it's supposed to do? How come that the transformations that are being produced aren't as powerful as we might hope they would be? And there's another script that says this is the case because we live in a fallen world and that God's not sovereign and that one day all of this will be okay because God will come again in power to assert his authority. But the problem with this is that it can put us in a strange sort of a bind. It makes us hard for us to move. Being told that something you are asked to believe in doesn't work because of something even more cosmic in play and that submission is required but won't work until the conditions are right, you can get stuck in that very easily and paralyzed and ultimately untransformed. The script isn't enough to understand all of this. So in my work, I practice psychoanalysis. And roughly speaking, this means that people come to see me when their lives have stopped giving them pleasure, when the words they have to describe themselves sum them up so tightly that they can't breathe, when being with other people makes their bodies or their minds ache, or when they find themselves thrashing around in repetitive cycles that have become nauseating and predictable. And whether it's problems with eating, relationships, or reality, they're hoping for transformation of some sort. And as a psychotherapist, one has a strange job. One must offer an open space where a person can come to terms with aspects of their mind that they have learned to keep a distance from. In other words, there's an idea in psychoanalysis that we can become fundamentally estranged from ourselves, so much so that we don't recognize that our pain is coming from within us and it needs to be seen. That we've been putting so much effort into not seeing what was going on within us that we have very little energy left for anything else. And over time, usually lots of time, a person is reacquainted with their own mind and helped to bear this within themselves. And putting it far too simply, this is what makes people better. Being able to understand the person they are and being able to begin to live with this. That there's no magic involved. And in fact, there's usually an undoing of magic. Because all of us in some ways live as if there was magic. Some people think if they wash their hands enough times every day that they won't have to be angry. Some people believe that MI5 think their private conversations with their friends and family are important enough to lead to them being followed and their phones being tapped. And some people believe if they do enough good things or work hard enough that their father will finally tell them that they're a good boy or girl, age now 45. And without this magic, this story about themselves, there's a terrible fear that everything will fall apart. So maybe you can see the problem that people coming for therapy, and to a certain extent all of us have. Something is wrong, but we don't want to to give up how we think and feel about ourselves. We want to change without changing anything at all. And Freud called this resistance, and he thought that it followed every psychoanalytic treatment the whole way along. Transformation is not easy to achieve. 
It's not easy to achieve because of our resistance to really looking at ourselves and because of projection. That is, our tendency to see our problems and the solutions to these problems coming from somewhere else, outside of ourselves. Transformation is not easy because it involves us being reacquainted with the parts of ourselves we'd rather not think about. In the therapist's language, there's a desire to keep all of this unconscious. And the thought I want to share with you this evening is that the reason that we cannot change or be transformed in the ways that we want as Christians and as a Christian community is that a lot of time we try to use God and the resurrected Christ as a sort of a magic trick. And in doing this, we remain at a distance from the hard work of change and transformation. That our belief about the Easter story sometimes doesn't help us because rather than facing us with ourselves, we have found a way of putting all our problems onto God. And over the years, this script which has developed has influenced us very deeply. And far from it being non-worldly, it is very infused by the culture around us. I might even risk saying that this script is unbiblical because it focuses very simply on individuals being personally made right by a private God in a once-in-a-lifetime sort of a way. Sometimes we call this being born again. And it's a story that's straight out of our market culture, a deal that we cannot pass up on, a deal which will make everything in our lives fine forever, and it's just for us. But if there is no magic, is there another way we can think about this together? Because we're one week on the other side of Easter, which is the most potent symbol we have for thinking about our faith lives. Can we find something fresh here to aid us in our desire for transformation? I hope so. There's a wonderful moment in the theologian Walter Brueggemann's book, The Bible Makes Sense, where he takes hold of our thinking about the meaning of resurrection and opens it up to new and powerful meanings. And he writes the following, and I'll put it up so you can follow. The Bible has has notions of life and death that are different from those we have today. Whereas we think of life as the continuing functioning of the individual organism and death as the cessation of such functioning, the Bible understands life and death in covenantal categories. Life means to be significantly involved in a community of caring, meaning, and action. And death means to be excluded from such a community or denied access to its caring, meaning, or action. Life means a capacity to enter into covenants and the ability to make covenants that are also community-creating possibilities for others. Life and death do not have to do, in biblical perspective, simply with the state of the individual person, but with the relation between the person and the community that identifies with the person and gives personhood. This is my punchline, that this time of year, this Easter time, when we're fresh with the joy of the risen Christ, and perhaps other phrases that might have become part of our script, that there might be something else happening, some other story trying to be heard, 
and that if we are careful readers and studiers of the text, that we might find the story. And, this, and the, here it is, that life and death are not just about being born and dying, or about being born again and never dying. Life, in biblical terms, says Brueggemann, means a capacity to be significantly involved in a community of caring, meaning, and action. That this is the real story of the resurrection. That the job of this core story of our faith is to draw people to life. And life is only possible within a community. Resurrection means the end of private arrangements, the end of privileged access, and the awful reality that we are bound together more closely than we ever imagined. That you and I, all of us here tonight, are stuck with each other. In another work, Brueggemann writes, the resurrection is not just about a dead man come back to life. It is about power at work that we cannot control, power to make human life possible in all the failed places. Now, in the conservative church, and as I have been suggesting, in the conservative aspect of ourselves, which we all have, which is the powerful desire to keep things as they are, we are in danger of telling and retelling a story about the resurrection that keeps just turning over upon itself as a statement of dogma. And that because of this, we can leave out a more radical version of the story. That is that in the story of Easter, we are celebrating a Jesus who does not take our sins away in some sort of magic trick, but we are celebrating a Jesus who enters into every failed place in our lives and finds ways of including us. And not only that, but the story offers us a new way of viewing our human relationships. That brokenness and despair can be transformed in the midst of a loving human community that that takes as its own story this desire to be alongside the failed places until the conditions begin to change. The more radical version of Easter is a process story that we are being invited to enter into this story. Not to believe it, but to be it. But you know, the script that I was referring to earlier is very powerful. And it can continue to undo all of the work that we try to do. The work that the risen Christ wants to face us with, facing ourselves. The script holds on to a version of magic like a child clinging to its mother on the first day of school. It takes the upside-down kingdom that Jesus presents us with, which where there's a king who is a servant. Remember how many times you've sung that. And the script puts it back up the other way around where the king is a king again. And we get stuck. Stuck with the dogmatic content and no process. But by reflecting on this script, this resistance in all of us, we might keep ourselves returning again and again to this odd story which breathes question and question into our tired answers and keeps us alive. Now, 
There's a lot more to say about this, but there isn't a lot of time. So suffice it to say that there exists in our strange and odd text in our Christian stories a radical, vibrant story, always with the possibility of emerging. And it's truly transformative because it places us before one another in all our differences and lets us in on the secret of transformation. That secret being the possibility of entering through identification with Christ into a deep relationship with ourselves and others until we find ways of bearing ourselves in a community of difference, love and action. And that by being lost together, we will finally be at home and finally found. Maybe we could just take a moment before we finish. I'm just going to read a kind of a a small um, response to to this sort of thinking to kind of send us out with. So maybe we could just take a moment of quiet. So this is an invitation to practice resurrection. And it's called, We Have Decided Not to Die. We have decided not to die, and we want you to join us. This is an invitation. I am reading it right now. It's only words on a page, but words are the best we can do for now. This is not an idea. I don't think we can think this, no matter how hard we try. It's a mantra, a shout, a shot in the dark, a skimming stone, a lover's kiss, a whispered secret. We have decided not to die. Because we do not just believe in resurrection anymore, but we are willing it. We are closing our eyes holding our breath and willing it with everything inside of us. Live, 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 live. We are finding places inside where nothing can touch us, nothing can kill us off. We are finding places where aliveness is shining and singing and surging and shimmering and every breath is like swallowing the whole of the universe and gasping for more. We are here now, and we have decided not to die. Our eyes are electricity. Our minds are ravenous. We are killing death with every breath. We are sucking death from holy books, deleting it from eBay, tearing it from TVs and pop idols and icons, and filching it from churches. We have decided not to die. We are willing resurrection. We are willing life willing flesh around tired bones, breathing life into every corner, bursting with the glory of ourselves. We have decided not to die. Because death has lost its sting. And we will not be part of the living dead. 
grasping and cementing and congealing words until they become tombstones and verses and godly. So this is our invitation. Breathe in the sky. Inhale the night. Shimmer on horizons. Rise up, you dry bones, and sing. We have decided not to die. Amen.